All right, I'd like to welcome you back to another edition of Profiles in Courage, where we get to meet real people who are addressing social injustices throughout our society in practical ways and uh, people that you might not have heard of before, but are grassroots uh, warriors and freedom fighters for a more equitable society here in the United States. And I'm really excited to welcome to this conversation Dr. Herrera. So Dr. Herrera, welcome to this show. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to be on it. And uh, the pleasure is ours. I, I'm, I'm really excited because, we, you know, we started a series investigating educational disparity, in, particularly in our public education system, and did a couple of previous pieces that I'd encourage you to go back and read uh, in the Rage Against the Machine blog category, as well as a Profiles in Courage, in which we actually got to meet a couple of other co-workers of Dr. Herrera, uh, Lindsay and Nasir, there in Modesto with the Language Institute. In this conversation, we've gotten an opportunity to see how it relates to a particular community, specifically there in Modesto in Stanislaw County here in California. So, Dr. Herrera, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your journey into public education and more broadly, and then I'd really like to dive in and hear a little bit more about some of your particular research. My experience with education really started with um, my mom. So she was a public educator for 30 years, um, English and Spanish teacher at the high school level, as well as child development teacher at the junior college level. And so I've just been around education for a while since I was little, and it's kind of just natural for me to get into that as well. So that's what I did. I got into specifically the English side of things. And this is my 12th year of teaching. And kind of as I explained for 2009, when we opened the Language Institute, myself and Lindsay Berg were the original teachers, I suppose, and, and the, the only two that have stayed since that very first day. Within that, this past 10 years, we've learned that these students and programs really need advocates and people that are knowledgeable in the educational system and that actually have somewhat of a seat at the table. And so that kind of prompted me to going in back to school and getting my master's degree in education, of course, but also my pupil personal services credential so that I could be a counselor. And then again, now, you know, moving forward a few years from that, I've decided to go back to get my doctorate because, again, advocacy is key. And really, I just felt like I needed a more powerful voice. And despite the superficiality of it, I feel as if people may listen to me a bit more if I have that DR in front of my name, simply because the education and the experience has given me the knowledge to be able to talk about these issues. Tell me a little bit more about the specific research that you engaged in with some other fellow researchers, and you're more than welcome to drop their names in, in recognition of their uh, tremendous investment, and some conclusions and some observations that you came to, maybe in particular those that really highlight the challenges in providing education that is fair and equitable to, to all students uh, across the economic spectrum. Fellow researcher, Dr. Talitha Agin is actually local historian here in Modesto, California. So she is professor at the Modesto Junior College, just an unbelievable historian. And so her look too at just the history of Modesto and the various ways that different parts of the community have been marginalized were a key component to our research because it was really able to 
pinpoint the fact that some of these different parts have not really evolved much or gotten much better. And so you kind of just see how some areas of town have been left behind. Dr. Campbell Bullock um, is a sociologist, and he actually is at uh, Delta College, and then he teaches a few classes at Stanislaus State as well. And, you know, with the, with the sociology perspective, really offered, again, another great lens for the research. And then our head professor, Dr. Catherine McKenzie, Professor Emeritus from Texas A&M, all her previous work and books that she's done have been in equity audits, and they've been based in this classroom and then at the school level and the district level. It's just an audit on how equitable the disbursement of education is, whether it's within your classroom or in a broader sense. But then we were able to expand that and take a look at more of the community level and essentially perform or what we will be using as a model equity audit for a community using geographical information systems and mapping to essentially show the distances between two very different communities in Modesto, California, one more on the wealthy side and then one at the lowest socioeconomic level. Though they are two, three miles apart from each other, we were able to essentially map those communities and their distances to various resources. And we essentially looked at five social determinants of health and well-being, our childhood social determinants of health and well-being. Those were essentially poverty, socioeconomic status, of course, the availability and affordability of safe housing, the exposure to violence and crime, access to and availability of health care, and then access to and availability of community resources. And like I said, using geographical information systems, we were able to map that and really further describe how it is that the haves are continuing to have and how the have-nots are continuing today at at, at level. So maybe you could talk a few minutes, just because it's something I described in a previous piece, in looking at one particular but significant area of disparity in terms of funding the way in which funding is distributed as it relates to property taxes and property value and how that can play potentially a a really critical role in either continuing to further well-resourced schools or handicapping those that are already in locations where property values and therefore taxes are depressed. So for sure, the local control funding formula does pull in 25% of its funding for schools from property taxes. And that's a large chunk, right? And so a part of our research, and we talked about, you know, safe housing and that being one of the social determinants for health and well-being and essentially academic success, you compare the, the home ownership rates. And so in one area in Modesto, you have 60.4% of people are homeowners in this particular attendance zone, whereas in the lowest economic area in Modesto, or actually, and we based it off of percentage of the free and reduced lunch, and this particular school was the lowest in the east side of Modesto. And so in that particular zone, there were only 32.0% of homeowners, and the rest were renters. So you figure, one, the property value there is limited and low, but then even those who are generating the taxes are not even putting it back into that area. So, so that's a big reason to why the disparity levels are um, off. I will say, though, in LCFF's defense, I mean, there are other different supplemental grants and that schools that are higher level socioeconomic disparities 
they do get a little bit more funding. But it does come down, again, to the local people and how that funding is dispersed. And depending on how active your community is or even how well educated in, in the educational system your community is, you may or may not get people with the right perspective or right lens offering, I guess, a, a good solid recommendations for how the money should be spent. Yeah, it sounds like one of the themes that I'm hearing and what you're sharing is that one, this is a multifaceted issue and we can't oversimplify the different causes. It's complex in that regards. And so I'm wondering, it's interesting when I I talk to people who are professionals in certain fields, I mean, I'm a professional in some of my own fields, but not a professional educator. And yet it's critical for people like myself to get as knowledgeable as possible and to engage meaningfully as an active participant in the community. Uh, You know, we all lose when certain segments of the next generation that we are raising up are not properly supported and educated. And so what might be some simple ways and recommendations that you might have for the listeners of this podcast for how they can continue to grow in their knowledge and how they can meaningfully engage? And and maybe are there some specific policies that you are recommending that you think could be potential solutions to addressing this gap that we often see in terms of education across various socioeconomic segments of our communities? If people want to learn more about how to get more involved at the equitable disbursement of education, they really should take a look at where these students are going home to and what types of resources they have access to on a regular basis. And because if we give schools and school districts the benefit of the doubt that they or we are doing everything we can to educate students, students are still not entering the classroom at equal levels. So if you are in a community where socioeconomic level is higher, you have access to vehicles that can take you to the doctor's office or take you to a place to get fresh food. Let's say you have a house that's been remodeled. There's no asbestos. Your neighborhood is safe. You're not having to deal with crime. You're going to go to school that next morning in a different state than, let's say, in another community where they have very limited, limited access to fresh food. Maybe there's only liquor stores, and because there's one vehicle at best or a bus route that only goes in one direction, it limits that child's experience when they get home. It's going to be very different, right? And, and again, with back to the neighborhood, if the neighborhood isn't very safe and there's no walkable spaces and green space is to go and release some steam, play in the playground, get that child entering school that next day is, is again going to be in a different situation. And so for myself, in a home that's big enough for me and my three children, and we have a car that can take us to get fresh food when we need it, and health care, which is a social determinant of health and wellness, I'm able to get kids to school at optimum levels of, for learning very different experience, you know, let's say in this east side community where mother is very limited in her options and limited in in vehicles and maybe limited with health insurance and have to make tough choices on a daily basis. And then moving forward, recommendation-wise, our research led us to conclude that implementing 
making full service community schools was one of the best solutions. So that way, within various attendance zones, students and families could essentially get their needs met. So what that means is a more tighter partnership with the local municipalities and governance and the school district to do an audit of what resources and community policies are already helping the school and then essentially implement ways in which different healthcare facilities, family social care services can all be implemented in that local school attendance zone. So that way, again, some of the barriers that some students and families may face can be eliminated. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that the key to understanding the challenges in the classroom is to understand the challenges that families are facing outside of the classroom. And that one potential solution is to consider how, in particular, schools or school districts that seem to be facing an enormous amount of challenges that maybe neighborhoods that are of a higher socioeconomic class are not struggling with, that they consider how they can marshal their resources to provide wraparound services that comprehensively meet those needs and position not only the students, but the families to be in an optimum position for learning. That's 100% correct. Yes, and if we want an equitable disbursement of education, again, if we, again, give the school districts the benefit of the doubt that they are trying their best, um, including the way it's funded, knowing that there are still some inequities even within the funding systems and just local mentalities, but if we give them the benefit of the doubt that all is being done, it's just not enough. We really need to extend it um, as a responsibility, not just within the school district, but the local governance as well. And so calling really for partnerships to ensure that every part of the community is able to send their children to school at the optimum level cognition, I guess. Let me conclude with, with one question, because an unspoken thing that I'm hearing in all of this is that it's absolutely critical that members of the community who perhaps come from different you know, sides of the track where individuals usually are predominantly Caucasian and in predominantly more wealthier communities in contrast to other segments of the community that predominantly work uh, people of color and other ethnicities, right. that one of the essential things that needs to happen if we're ever going to move the needle on this and move towards a more fair and equitable system of educating our next generation of leaders in our communities and across this nation is a genuine sense of empathy that individuals who are not used to facing certain kinds of struggles that, like you articulated, are particularly acute in communities where there might be predominantly racial or ethnic minorities or individuals who have over multiple generations struggled with poverty How do we help create a sense of empathy for those individuals who are outside of that context so that they feel motivated at the policy level to contribute more for the welfare of their entire community and not just their own neighborhood? I think think every person that is stuck within their own bubble, everybody's going to need something different, right, in order for them to be moved to that empathy piece. Sometimes I think unless it touches their home, that might be a hard sell. So one suggestion, I know one of, one of my, and, but this is, I guess, for educators, but it would be very interesting, though, 
if community members engaged in it as well, is like community tubers. One of the ways that uh, actually Dr. McKinsey, our, our lead head professor, got her faculty back in Texas engaged with her families at the elementary school she was a principal of is they went and did neighborhood walks. And they in, went in and just like a politician would walk a precinct, these teachers would walk the neighborhood and, and tried to meet the families. And it gave the people a sense of who their families were and, and really what they were facing and for the good and the bad and, you know, what gifts these families had and maybe what deficits. A recognition, one, that there that there are other people that don't live 100% like yourself, right? That's the first realization, I think. But then the desire to learn about others probably the second thing that would need to happen. But it would be interesting to, you know, have these community tours just to open and expand the view of people from various parts of the community just to recognize again that you're not a, you're not you're not your little world is not the only world that exists but I think in the opposite end too for even for students um, kind of going maybe in other in, in, in both directions right so even if affluent students go into maybe impoverished neighborhoods but then also other students go into maybe these upper class areas because essentially what I have found is that sometimes you can't become what you can't see and I just feel like students need to see and recognize themselves in all different positions. So then one, they gain the empathy and then two, maybe they feel like they can one day get to a different place. I think it might actually benefit all parties, right? If, if there were just literally these community tours for the sake of learning. Sounds like a, a student swap. And uh, our parents, you know, teachers, it would be interesting to cross with various policy leaders, local politicians and decision makers. Right. That, and it goes back, you know, just to the age old saying that, you know, before you judge another person, you know, make sure you've walked in his or her shoes. And that sure. the, whole, the whole concept is systemic social injustice and inequality will never really be addressed until the haves and the haves not are are in proximity with one another. Right, exactly, because you know, even just like I said, based off of these five social determinants of health and well-being, you can go into a community and say, okay, what does this community have? Okay, look at how much just having these five resources, how it changes the academic outcomes and success of a child. Okay, now look at, let's go to this neighborhood. Look at what, based off of these five social determinants of health and well-being, look at how limited they are and the ability to access these things. And look at the outcomes here, right? Because again, we of course looked at the educational outcomes of the two attendant zones. And of course, it's just, it's night and day, unfortunately. And again, if, if we're looking just at the school and curriculum is the same, let's say, right? And qualified professionals at both sites and students and teachers who love their kids, what is that difference? And the difference is essentially where you live, where you live matters. And right, I think that that extension policy within the municipality really needs to change. And if we do want to invest in our community and there's enough room for everybody to win. And so really it would be in the best interest of our city to, to take a look at these communities and ensure that these, all of the communities have resources and the things that are, you know are deemed necessary mm. for health and well-being, and then of course that will just translate into the academic success of its kids. There's room for everyone to win. I think that's a great 
takeaway in all of this. This is not an either or zero sum equation. No. So thank you, Dr. Herrera, again, for joining us. And thank you for the investment that you're continuing to make in your community for a fair and equitable education for all of our students. Yes, thank you for having me. And no problem. It's my life's work. So I, I enjoy what I do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and remember that you can check out more of my takes on faith, social justice, and pop culture, along with other life-inspired musings by visiting www.curtelewis.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from this and other publications featured on my website, would you take a few minutes to show your support? First, you can share it with your friends via social media, text message, email, word of mouth, pigeon bird, cave art, whichever you prefer. Second, if you're listening on iTunes, take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast and to give it a positive review. Lastly, you can help me to continue to produce these podcasts by making a monthly or one-time financial contribution. Click on support on the website to learn more. Again, thanks so much for listening.